0: Good morning, that was really weak, (laughs) but we're glad you're here today, we really are, and I hope that uh, you'll have a great day today, and may it begin with some uh, great worship time together this morning. It's an eventful day, some will be headed out to junior week at Gulf Coast Bible Camp, let's pray for them, and uh, if I was going out this week, I'd be looking forward to swim time. And also this afternoon, a couple shower for Jake and McKenna Brooks. That's at 4 p.m. Tonight at 6 p.m., I want to encourage all of us to be back uh, as we've invited the Chickasaw Church to come and worship with us. And, uh, and after that, we'll have a finger food fellowship meal. So please avail yourself of that opportunity. And let's welcome our brothers and sisters from the Chickasaw Church. I believe this text is probably one of the most beloved by by Christians, by followers of Jesus. It was spoken, these words were spoken by Jesus after he had told his disciples that he was about to depart. And they are extremely distraught over that news. And this is what Jesus said. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know where I'm going, and you know the way. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Don't you love that passage? As a follower of Jesus, we recognize that Jesus' comforting words bring great comfort to us to know that as His his people, as His followers, He's also preparing a place for us and, and that gives us an eternal hope. But folks, this beloved passage, would you believe this beloved passage is also one of the most hated by many in the world today. How can that be? A passage that we embrace and we celebrate and it gives us such tremendous hope for the future, it's hated by many in the world today. And the reason is, is because Jesus' statement here in John 14 verse 6 is too exclusive in a pluralistic world. It's too exclusive. Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. In a a culture that we live in, an exclusive statement like that is is rejected and hated by so many. Because we do live in a pluralistic society. What What is meant by that? Here's a definition from the Britannica Dictionary. Pluralism is the belief that people of different social classes, religions, races, etc. should live together in a society. And as you look at that definition, I don't have a problem with that definition. That we should live together regardless of who we are and where we are and so forth. what, What we believe. But in a pluralistic society... is often taken to the next level. That not only should we live together, but we should accept everything else. Every Let's focus on religion. We should allow every religion to be equally as valid. And what comes out of this is this idea that there are many roads to God, we are told. There are many roads to God. You follow Jesus and you're headed to God. But a Muslim is following Muhammad. He's headed to God and so forth. And they're all viewed as as equal. And to say that there is only one way, as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is viewed as exclusive and it's rejected by so many. You're saying there's only one way. But a pluralistic society would say all roads lead to God. You can see how and why Jesus' statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is seen as uh, too exclusive and therefore rejected. I read about a report from the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. This was in 2009, so a few years ago. Here are some findings from this poll that was taken that were alarming. One of the significant findings was that 70% of all Americans believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Included are 65% of all self-identifying Christians. But 70% of all Americans believe many religions, again, all roads lead to God, lead to heaven. Perhaps the most surprising finding was that 56% of all or what are called evangelical Christians believe there are many paths other than faith in Christ to God and eternal life. And again I'm suggesting to you it's with this culture in which we live this pluralistic culture where there's so many diverse views and and but there's this undercurrent in our culture that says We don't need to be exclusive. We need to be inclusive. And we need to recognize every thought as valid, even though they may be contradictory. And in regards to religion, all roads lead lead to God. You see, increasing numbers of Americans are questioning the long-held commitment of the church that salvation is found only in Jesus Here's something else from this report. Among all Americans affiliated with a religion, 52% believe that Islam leads to eternal life with God. 53% believe that Hinduism leads to God. And 42% even believe that atheism atheism believe, or leads to God. How could that be? But the, uh, the, what they're saying is that, well, God ultimately is going to accept everybody. It's a universalism concept. So even atheists in the end are going to be saved. But despite these, the results of this Pew study, uh, this poll, these polls, there comes this statement from our Lord. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What we've been studying uh, once a month are some foundations of our faith. Some foundations of our faith. The things that make Christianity Christian. And Tucker began this series with uh, a lesson including this quote. The fundamentals of the faith are defining beliefs that make Christians Christian. The beliefs that if we were to set aside, we would no longer be recognizably Christian. Scott Adair has developed what he has called the seven essential elements of faith. And we've been working our way through these. And we're on number five. That forgiveness of sins is through Jesus. And may I underscore it by adding one word. Forgiveness of sins is only through Jesus. So let me unpack that with you. This will be a review for most everyone. But folks, in a a culture of pluralism, where all views are seen as equally valid, we need to be standing on the truth of what Jesus has said. So let me tell you a story. There was a young man who was brought before a judge for drunk driving. And when his name was announced by the bailiff, there was a gasp in the courtroom. You know why? Because that young man was the son of the judge. The judge is hoping his son is innocent, but the evidence is irrefutable. He's guilty. What can the judge do? He's caught in a dilemma between justice and love. Since his son is guilty, he deserves punishment but because the father loves the son, he doesn't want him to have to endure that punishment. So what does he do? You and I find ourselves in a similar predicament because all of us have sinned. Romans 3:23, you know this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And notice the tense of the the words there. All have sinned. All of us can look back in our past and and see, we've made mistakes. We have transgressed the law of God and fall short. One time I misquoted it uh, in a Living Water article and I was corrected. It's not have fallen short, but it's fall short. We continue to fall short of the glory of God. So it's a problem with our past and even our present and even in, in our future. We are sinners. Well, some, some respond to that, well, I, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person in comparison to others. What about Hitler? I'm better than Hitler. Or you may say, or a person may say, well, I'm better than my neighbor. You ought to see what he does. But we're comparing ourselves with the wrong standard. The one to whom we must look as far as our standard is God Himself. And God is of moral perfection. And compared to God, every one of us, it's universal. Has fallen, we, fall, we have fallen short and we have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And the punishment for our sins, the wages of sin, is death. So there's the verdict. And we're guilty. There's irrefutable evidence. But here is God who loves us And He wants to save us. In fact, 1 Timothy 2 verse 4 says He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He loves us. He wants us to be saved. But God is also a just God. He's a just God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, the psalmist says. Psalm 89 and verse 14. God can't just overlook sin. Sin must be punished. Justice demands that sin must be punished. So here we're in a predicament. We're sinners. We deserve the wages of sin, death. God, our ultimate judge, loves us and he wants to save us, but he's also a just God and sin must be punished. How can a loving, holy God save sinful man and still be just? Let's go back to our story. The judge reluctantly announces the sentence, Son, you can either pay a $5,000 fine or you can go to jail. The son looks up at the judge, his father, and he says, But Dad, I I promise to be good from now on. I'll volunteer at soup kitchens. I'll visit the elderly. I'll even open up a home for abused children. And I'll never do anything wrong again. Please let me go. The judge responds, you can't do all of that. But even if you could, your future good deeds can't change the fact that you're guilty of drunk, of drunk driving. You see, the judge recognizes that good works cannot cancel bad works. And as a just judge, there has been a crime and you, do, you commit the crime, you do the time you suffer the consequences. Justice demands that. Perfect justice demands that his son be punished for what he has done. And that's God's judgment upon us. Our good works cannot cancel out our bad works. We can make this bargain with God to no avail. God, I'll never do anything wrong again if you'll just forgive me of this offense and let me go free. But here is the stark... Truth from the scriptures folks being good isn't good enough being good isn't good enough now God wants us to be good but folks being good isn't good enough to get us to heaven case in point and we're going to be studying about this in our Sunday morning class in the fellowship room Cornelius Cornelius was a good man a generous man a God fearing man But yet, even Cornelius needed to hear the good news about Jesus so that he could be saved. He and his family could be saved from their sins. Folks, if goodness was good enough to get us to heaven, Cornelius wouldn't have needed to hear about Jesus. Good isn't good enough. Why not? Because that's our struggle, isn't it? We can't be good enough. We fall short. We continue to fall short as Romans 3 verse 23 says. In fact, you remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember Jesus' first response to that? No one is good but one, and that is God. There's the perfect definition of what goodness is. And if we could be as good as God, then we could be saved by our own merits. But no one is good, that good, except God. So here is God's just judgment on mankind. There is none righteous, no, not one. So God is a just God. Therefore, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. Let's go back to our story. So the judge repeats, I'm sorry, son. As much as I'd like to allow you to go, I'm bound by the law. The punishment for the crime is $5,000 or you go to jail. The son pleads with his father, but dad, you know I don't have $5,000. There has to be another way to avoid jail. And by the way, we're in that same predicament. Because of our sin and we're under this judgment from God, we don't have enough resources to pay that debt. There's a couple of parables that I'd love to take you to to underscore that truth, the parable of the debtors and the parable of the unforgiving servant. But a main message in those parables that Jesus told was, we don't have the resources to pay back the debt that we owe to God. The song that he paid a debt, these lyrics are so true. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And in our story, that's what this son is pleading for You know I don't have $5,000. I can't pay that. There has to be another way. But here's the good news. There is another way. There is the way to have forgiveness. It's the good news. So back to our story. The judge stands up. The judge stands up. And he takes off his robe. And he descends down to where his son is, and he looks him right in the eyes. He reaches down into his pocket, and he pulls out $5,000, and he hands it to his son. The son is embarrassed by this. He's startled by this. But he understands there's only one thing he can do to be free, and that is to take the money. There's nothing else that he can do Good works or promises of good works cannot set Him free. Only the acceptance of His Father's free gift can save the Son from certain punishment. I hope the parallel is hitting us between the eyes. We come with that judgment of God upon us because we're sinners. And God is a just God, and He must punish our sin. Is there a way... For Him to punish our sin and yet save us because He loves us? And the answer is yes. And that is through the atoning death of His Son, Jesus. You see, the only way that God can remain just but not punish us for our sins is to punish a sinless substitute who voluntarily takes our punishment. It has to be a sinless substitute or else that person would be suffering for his own sins. And it has to be voluntary because it would be unjust to force someone to take the place for sinners. Where can God find a willing, sinless substitute? And the answer is through His Son, Jesus. The Son of God came down from heaven... To save you and me from punishment. The punishment that we deserve. Folks, recognize the truth of Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And let me just remind you of some reasons why Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only Savior. He alone is qualified to be our Savior. And how do we know that that is the case? Number one, because Christ alone is God incarnate. Christ alone is God in the flesh. Please look at these scriptures when you can. I can't read through all of these, but it's a truth that's affirmed over and over that Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. He's God incarnate, God in the flesh. Fully man, yet fully God. Man he must be to be our perfect representative. God he must be in order to satisfy the demands of the payment of our sin. Listen to 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 and 6. There is one God and one mediator between God and, and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Only Jesus, God incarnate, could pay that price on our behalf. He alone is the Savior. Secondly, Christ alone lived a sinless life. As such, He alone qualifies to be Savior. You remember in the Old Testament when the the Jews were instructed by the law of Moses to offer sacrifices for their sins... That those animals had to be the best and without what? Without blemish. That quality prefigured the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Himself. He was without blemish. He was without sin. And He had to be without sin in order to take upon Himself our sins. If Jesus had been a sinner, He would have been dying for His own sins. But as the sinless son of God, he took our sins upon himself and paid the price so that we could be saved. He made him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, who knew no sin to be sin or the idea is to be a sin offering for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Only Jesus could live the sinless life. Only Jesus could therefore Pay the price for our sins. Thirdly, Christ alone died a penal substitutionary death for our sins. Penal as in uh, punishment, suffering punishment, sins punishment upon himself and substitutionary. The wages of sin is death we've read and because Christ lived a sinless life, he did not deserve to die, but yet he died in our place. He died in our place. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. His atoning death is sufficient payment for the sins of everybody who's ever lived or ever will live. It's the propitiation. And the idea is that His death, His blood that He shed in His death, appeased the wrath of God. It satisfied the justice of God. Payment has been made. The offender can be set free because payment has been rendered to satisfy not only God's justice, but God's love. Only Jesus could do that, and only Jesus did that for us. One more reason, Christ alone rose from the dead triumphant over sin. As such, He alone qualifies to be Savior. Only Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again, having triumphed over sin. You see, the wages of sin is death, and the greatest power of sin is death. But Christ defeated death in His resurrection. He rose from the grave by the power of God and accomplished both the full payment of sin's penalty and the full victory over sin's greatest power. Paul put it like this in Romans 4. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification so that you and I can be, could stand before God justified, cleansed, declared righteous because of what Jesus did for us as when He died for our sins, was buried, but rose again, demonstrating the power of God over sin and over death. You see, the conclusion is unquestionable. Christ alone qualifies as Savior. Christ alone is the only Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Apostle Peter confirms this, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's rejected today, folks, because it's viewed as exclusive. Jesus never intended it to be exclusive in this sense. He wants everyone to be saved. He paid the price so that everyone can be saved. But in order to be saved by the Savior, we've got to accept His offer on His terms. And He doesn't want to reject anyone from that. He gives the opportunity. And we are breathing today. People are alive today because God has given them the opportunity to accept the gift that Jesus has made possible. But yes, indeed, He is the only Savior. Muhammad won't save you. Buddha won't save you. Let's personalize it. I can't save myself. You can't save yourself. We are doomed in the, under the judgment of God. But He loves us so much that He gave His Son who took off of those, those, those garments of a judge and became us, like us, fully God but yet fully man and showed just how much God loves us by paying the price for our sins so that we, we can be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we've been commanded to, to share with everyone in the world. Yes, there's only one Savior, but He can be your Savior if you'll surrender your life in obedience to His will. And that's exactly what God wants. Jesus is the only way, because there's only one way God can reconcile His infinite justice and His infinite love. And that's through the gift Of his son Jesus. Our response is to accept his offer on his terms. Like the judge did for his erring son, he satisfied his justice by giving his son to die for our sins. And all we need to do in order to receive that salvation and that life is to accept that gift through our faith a faith that believes, a faith that trusts and a faith that obeys the will of the master. And so what we find in the book of Acts, as the gospel is being proclaimed to, to Jews first and also to the Gentiles, and Paul going out everywhere he possibly could, especially to areas where Christ had not been preached, he wanted the message to be heard. You are in sin and you're under the judgment of God and you're destined for hell. But God loves you so much that He gave Jesus to die for you. And if you'll just accept that on His terms, you can be saved. Because Jesus is the only Savior. And to accept that gift, you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus. That He's the only one that can pay the price for for our sins. And He did. We need to turn from sin and repentance... And our aim for the rest of our lives is not to repeat the things that put Jesus on the cross. But we're going to struggle. The Bible tells us we're going to. But as we walk in the light, as it it is our aim to follow after Jesus, the promise is that the blood of Jesus will continue to cleanse us from our sins. And we need to thank God for that. Because it's not through our meritorious works that we're going to get to heaven. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we initially come in contact with when we're baptized into Christ. His blood washes away our sins. And then as we continue to walk in the light, His blood blood continues to cleanse us. And that is the greatest news I could ever share with you today. Because that's the gospel. Jesus is the only way the only way, stand on that truth, but even more, embrace it, live it, but share it. God wants all people to be saved, and He gave His Son in order for that to happen. But that message has to be shared. And if you're ready to embrace that message and accept His offer of salvation in life on His terms... We're ready as a penitent believer, we're ready to baptize you into Christ. So His blood, the only what can wash away my sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can keep me whole, ready for the second coming of Christ? The blood of Jesus as we walk in the light. But if we've strayed off course, the good news is we can come back home. We can ask God to forgive us. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1 and verse 9. If that's the prayer in your heart as a child of God who's wandered away, if you have some burden you want us to pray with you about, we'd love to. But let's affirm the truth. Jesus is the only way. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable, gift. If you're subject to the invitation please come right now as we stand and sing.